ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Afternoon, folks. I'm Selena Green with you for the next hour. And in this next half an hour, if you're a sheep or goat producer, you'll find out how you can apply for a rebate towards the cost of implementing the EID, the Electronic Identification Device Scheme. And meet a creature that's emerging as a top pollinator, alternative pollinator, to bees. Exceptional pollinators. So much like bees uh, being exceptional pollinators themselves, uh, the flies will do uh, an equivalent job to what bees do in certain crops. If you want to get in touch with me throughout the hour, my talkback number is 1300 891 or send me a text on 0467 991. First today, the Agriculture Minister has dismissed a survey by the National Farmers Federation showing that a majority of farmers who responded think the federal Labor government is harming agriculture. 1,600 farmers took part in the survey from the National Farmers Federation and consulting group Seftons, which showed 54.3% thought current government policies were harming ag, while 31.2% say the government is doing a good job for farmers. The Federal Agriculture Minister, Murray Watt, disagrees. Oh, look, I'm I'm certainly conscious that there are some policies uh, that farm groups and, and individual farmers aren't completely thrilled about. But I think if you look at it in totality, uh, under the Albanese government, there's been a range of significant improvements made that benefit farmers each and every day. We've obviously really strengthened our biosecurity protections. Uh, I'm actually speaking to you from Hobart Airport where I've just inspected their biosecurity arrangements. And of course, you know, touch wood, we've managed to keep out foot and mouth disease and lumpy skin disease when a lot of people thought it was inevitable they'd come here. Um, but, you know, also we've, we've taken real action to try to deliver uh, on the workforce needs of agriculture. Uh, it's not fixed entirely, but we've got more Pacific Island workers than we've ever had in Australia before. We've opened up new trade deals with a range of other countries to export more product. Uh, and of course, we're taking action on sustainability issues too. You know, I know that there's a lot of angst in particular in the livestock community at the moment about prices falling, and that is having a real impact on farmers. Uh, But unfortunately, as MLA and Rabobank and a number of others have confirmed, really what we're seeing is the market in operation. And we've got a massive oversupply, uh, particularly of sheep, but also cattle at the moment as well, which is impacting on prices. Uh, But look, we we work as... So do you think this survey is more about the politics of the farmers that are being asked or do do you actually take responsibility for some of those decisions that may be adversely affecting the sector? Oh, look, I I, I certainly wouldn't want to accuse people of engaging in politics. I mean, people are obviously entitled to their views, but I guess what I'm saying is that if you look at the full picture of what's happening with agriculture, there's a range of government actions that have occurred since we came to office that have been for the benefit of the farm sector and we want to continue that. Uh, I don't think everyone's going to agree all the time on everything. Uh, but, you know, I think when we, when, as I say, when we look at it on the whole, uh, I think that there's a lot of really positive things happening for the sector. And I know you've made some comments on this before, but but in terms of reiterating, a number of agricultural groups have written to you asking you to scrap the live export phase out, saying that is going to adversely affect an industry that's going through a downturn in in particular at the moment, given the state of the sheep industry at the moment. Is it something you would consider? 
No, look, we've been very clear from the beginning that we intend to honour our election commitment. This is obviously something that we went to two elections in a row committing to do, but I've also committed to do it in an orderly, considered manner. Um, so there are some groups who want us to phase out this trade immediately, and we've said that won't happen. And very soon I'll be receiving advice from the panel about how we can do it. Um, but I think, you know, there are still real opportunities for the sheep industry as well, particularly onshore processing. And we see a really bright future for the sheep industry uh, as we make these changes. That is the Federal Agriculture Minister Murray Watt, and he was speaking there to Warwick Long. Well, South Australian sheep and goat producers can now apply for an electronic identification device rebate scheme. The state government's providing a 50% rebate on the tags, up to a cap of 95 cents per device purchased this calendar year. The state's primary industries minister, Claire Scriven, told Annabelle Francis it's important to provide producers with financial support given the demand for mandatory EIDs. Uh, this, of course, is the big, a big part of the support package that the Labor government has announced to assist producers with uh, transitioning to electronic uh, identification for farmed sheep and goats and uh, of course this is really about making sure that we've got improved traceability which is so important in our fight against exotic animal diseases uh, and also in ensuring that our producers can continue to maintain market access uh, given the uh, increased demands for better traceability. And who can apply for this rebate and how can that be done? So they can go to the our Persa website, uh, and if they just search on uh, online, it'll come up, but it's um, the Persa website and then forward slash EID dash rebate. And to be eligible, producers need to have an active property identification code, usually called a PIC, and also be registered with Persa. Um, in terms of the devices, they need to be the eligible NLIS accredited devices and purchased between the 1st of January and the 31st of December this year. How... Uh long can people um, apply for? Is there a certain time frame people need to get in? Yes, so people do need to apply by the end of April next year, which I think should be um, quite enough time if they're they're applying for this current calendar year's worth of purchase of EID tags. Uh, So it should be reasonably simple and straightforward. Uh, And so for this calendar year, so the, the year of birth 2023 of animals, uh, it will be this rebate system and before, uh, uh, before long, uh, in the near future, we'll be able to talk about uh, the next step, which will be the guidelines for the 2024 EID re- rebate. And overall, what have you heard about the community's opinion of this, this rebate? Are people happy with it? I believe South Australia has the best system compared to the other states and territories in terms of what we are doing to support producers' transition to EID. Uh, producers have been keen to know how the, um, the discount was going to work, so I'm pleased that we're now able to release those guidelines. Um, but uh, the 50% rebate is incredibly important because that addresses the, the cost of the tags, uh, and then there is also the 75% subsidy for essential infrastructure that we've announced for um, places such as abattoirs, bail yards uh, and, and other uh, other areas that need that infrastructure installed as well. And what will happen to those who do not undertake this mandatory EID tagging? Yeah, so this is a, a mandatory tagging for those animals that are born uh, from the 1st of January 2025, uh, and that's stage one. And then there's the second stage, which ticks in on the 1st of January 2027. Uh, so this will be mandatory. So it's not just about uh, government in- this kind of system, however, um, 
it'll be the law, you need to do it, um, but we're not going straight to, we're not planning to go straight to fines and things like that. This will be an essential part of being able to sell your animals. So, um, so there's, there's currently the, the manual uh, ear tags, uh, which of course have been compulsory. Instead, it will be the electronic tags, which will be compulsory, uh, and that's a requirement under, uh, uh, under the systems that are in place. That is South Australia's Minister for Primary Industries, Claire Scriven, and she was speaking there to Annabelle Francis. You're on the South Australian Country Hour with Selena Green. It's 13 minutes past 12. Well, our state sardine fishery is one of the biggest in the country, and like any fishery, there are controls around how much commercial catch can be removed from it. But a new management plan for the state's commercial sardine fishery came into effect on the 1st of October, back on Monday. It covers the next 10 years. And most of the state's 14 licences are based in Port Lincoln or around Port Lincoln. Gavin Begg is the Executive Director of Fisheries and Aquaculture at Perza. Gavin, good afternoon. Yeah, hi, Selena. Good to be here. So the sardine fishery here in South Australia, I understand it's a, a pretty decent one. How, just how big is it in terms of its value and production? Yeah, the sardine fishery is actually the largest fishery by volume in Australia. Um, so it takes about 50,000 tonnes, and most of that's used for tuna feed. It's worth around $30 million beach price, and it supports a little over 200 people in jobs. So this is a new plan, a management plan for the industry. Why now seem like a good idea to, to revise this and come out with a new one? Oh, just from a regulatory perspective, we review these management plans on a formal basis. So when they come to the end of their plan, um, as the old one was due, um, we then need to renew them. We have to have a look at the plans and see if any changes need to happen. And then we set the direction through those plans. And in this case, for the next 10 years. Were there any significant changes that did need to be made for this new plan? Not significant, but the main changes were there were some uh, amendments within the harvest strategy. And the harvest strategy is really a set of rules that allows um, the amount of fish that can be taken out of the ocean. So there were some slight rule adjustments there that enabled some more harvest to be taken based on our increased understanding of the science and, and the state of the stock. And there was also another major change was there was an addition of a third management zone. So the fishery is, is based on a spatial management. So there's the Spencer Gulf Zone, uh, the outer zone outside the Gulf, and this new zone now, which we, which is called Gulf St Vincent. So spatial management, uh, slightly increased levels in the harvest strategy were where the main changes were. And, of course, uh, with all of the fishery stocks that are managed, there is pretty regular uh, surveying to see how those stocks are going. So this is the same for sardines. There is a, a pretty regular surveying method to see how the health of the fishery is looking. Yeah, this fishery has got quite an extensive um, scientific and monitoring program. So under the, the current harvest strategy and under the current set of rules is there's effectively an assessment done every year. And so there's a survey that, that goes out uh, across the main fishing grounds and it, it's called a daily egg production method survey. What that means is basically goes and sees how many eggs are in the water and you calculate back from the number of eggs how many number of fish produce those eggs and that gives you an estimate of the spawning biomass and that's the level or the indicator that we use to manage the stock. And so do you set catch limits for sardines like you do for, for many of the other fish species that are taken out of our waters? Yeah, absolutely. So this fishery has um, a, a quota system, an individual quota system as well as a total allowable commercial catch. 
Under the new harvest strategy, the most fish that can be taken out of the water is at 55,000 tonnes, which equates to about 27.5% of the total biomass. And to give you a sense, the latest uh, survey that was undertaken found the second largest spawning biomass estimate, and it was a little over 355,000 tonnes. So it's a, there's a lot of fish out there. And because sardines are important to the ecosystem, we have fairly conservative catch limits in terms of what can be taken. Mm, but fair to say, as far as sardines go, the, the numbers are looking quite healthy? Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the most recent surveys have shown that the, the stock is really healthy. Uh, there's large biomass out there and it certainly can sustain those catch levels that, that are in the new harvest strategy. Gavin Begg, thanks for joining us on the Country Hour today. Yeah, thanks very much, Selena. Kevin Begg there, he's Executive Director of Fisheries and Aquaculture at Perza. You're listening to Selena Green on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Well, as threats to Australia's bee population from disease like varroa mite increase, a fly is emerging as a top alternative pollinator. Hoverflies they look a lot like bees. They're about the same size, but they don't sting, so they're arguably easier to work with. The trials are part of a $6.4 million national program led by Hort Innovation and Fiona Breen spoke with researcher Dr Raylia Rowbottom. So we've been doing about seven years of research on the hoverfly, so first determining where it was in the crop, if we could rear it and then um, if we can actually get it to a commercial level for other industries to purchase. So seven years ago there was uh, pressure or there was a need for an alternative pollinator? Um, yeah, there was definitely a need for a, another alternative pollinated, managed one, um, that we can use complementary to bees. How are the hoverflies going? How would you rate them as pollinators? Yeah, exceptional pollinators. So much like bees uh, being exceptional pollinators themselves, uh, the flies will do uh, an equivalent job to what bees do in certain crops. So how do they do it? So they have uh, large hairy bodies um, in which when they're feeding off the flowers will get pollen stuck to the hairs on their bodies and then they'll cross different um, male-female lines and pollinate the, the flowers. Do they actually shake it off or it's just by accident? No, it's purely by accident. How did you get onto this or how did, how did the world get onto this? Yeah, so we did uh, quite a few years of surveys across um, many carrot crops in the state um, to, and we found the hoverflies there and then we've taken the research from there and looking at rearing them in confinement um, and doing some trials in cages to see how well they work. So they're endemic to Tasmania? They certainly are, yeah. You'll find them, they're actually um, around the globe, uh, but you, we do find them here in Tasmania and um, mainland Australia. And they're quite nice bees, really, in terms of their interaction with people? Yeah, they're very friendly. Given their name, hoverflies, they will literally come up and just hover in front of your face. Um, but they don't bite, they don't sting, and they're, they're not a pest to livestock. And they eat nice things? <laughs> they do, they do. They consume nectar and, and pollen off the flowers. Do you think people get them mixed up with bees? They look a little similar? They do. They look very similar. In fact, most people um, have seen pictures and thought instantly that it was a bee just purely because of the stripes they have on their body and the size of them is large for a fly. So they've always been pollinating here in Tasmania and now we're looking at, at sort of getting them to help us officially. Yeah, so yes, they are always here in the environment um, and now we're just managing them um, commercially so that we can actually put them on a particular site to do the pollination. So how have you been doing the research? You've started by trapping flies or...? <laughs> yeah, so we had to determine um, a source of flies uh, and then bring that um, colony into our rearing facilities and look at many different ways of how to rear them, um, on what they like to feed, 
um, and various other, like where they like to lay their eggs and things like that. So somewhere uh, around here and at your facilities, you're rearing them? We certainly are. So we've got two industry partners, both Bejo and SPS, that are rearing flies, um, as well as our research colony back down in Margate. Is there much interest in this project? Um, yeah, there's quite a few growers that have reached out, um, showing interest in trialling flies in their system to see how well they work. Yeah, mm. So we've got quite a few different growers that we're working with at the moment. And what about overseas in terms of research? Are researchers interested? Are they doing other types of species? Is there sort of similar programs? Um, yeah, so there are other flies that are being researched um, both in Australia and, and in the Netherlands. And even, even here we've got another species that we've got in mind that we want to do that's um, more adapted to warmer climates. So this is a bit of a game changer for, for the pollination industry. Yeah, um, it, it's essentially going to provide another managed pollinator that can be used um, in conjunction with bees. Good timing. Yeah, very good timing given that varroa mites here and we've got other concerns around bee colonies. Dr Raylia Rawbottom there, researcher in the use of hoverflies to pollinate crops in conjunction with honeybees. And unlike bees, hoverflies, hoverflies sorry, do not go back to the hive, so they're not, not at a risk to varroa mite. Speaking of bees, later on in the program, you'll meet a South Australian beekeeper who's actually undergone treatment to overcome his allergy, quite a severe allergy to bees as well, so that he can keep working. That story's to come very soon. The Voice to Parliament referendum. How will you vote? For everything you need to know to make your decision, the ABC has you covered. From the latest news and analysis. To videos and podcasts. Like the Referendum Explained podcast on the ABC Listen app. And more information you can trust on ABC News Digital. Everything you need to know before you vote on October 14 in the Voice to Parliament referendum. Go to news.abc.net.au. Well, let's find out what happened at the Mount Compass cattle market now. We're joined by John Traeger. Afternoon, John. Good afternoon. Quality and pricing improved this week as numbers reduced to 500 head of lightweight and open auction cattle. The usual buyers were in attendance and competition was generally good across the offering. Yearling steers and heifers were mostly of better type and conditioning and lifted in price. More grown cattle came forward and these were generally of heavier weights and carrying better condition. The cow offering also presented fewer inferior types and met solid competition, with most classes gaining on the previous week's sale. Wheeler steers firmed to sell from 150 to 233 cents, with Wheeler heifers lifting 15 cents to sell from 130 to 210 cents. Yearling steers gained 15 cents a kilo as lightweights sold from 180 to 240, medium weights 100 to 230 and heavier weights 207 to 241 cents. Yearling heifers sold mostly firm with lightweights selling from 70 to 159, medium weights 100 to 187 and heavier weights 160 to 220 cents a kilo. Manufacturing steers sold from 121 to 241 cents in firm, as grown steers gained 10 to 15 cents, with medium weights slung from 110 to 237, as heavy weights made from 109 to 240 cents. Grown heifers gained up to 25 cents a kilo, as they sold from 115 to 237 cents. Light dairy cows sold from 70 to 80 cents as light beef types range from 129 to 200 cents. Heavy dairy cows sold from 100 to 145 cents as beef types sold from 155 to 200 cents a kilo. 
Healing bulls sold from 120 to 150 cents, with heavy bulls selling from 165 to 220 cents a kilo. This is John Traeger at the Southern Livestock Exchange for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service and the Country Hour. John Traeger there with that report. It's 24 minutes past 12 and it's time to head to the Weather Bureau. Tina Donaldson is our forecaster today. Hi, Tina. Good afternoon, Selena. What does this Thursday bring us across the state? Yeah, look, the cooler than average conditions continuing and still a little bit of rainfall around. Uh, just reviewing the rainfall that we've had in the last 24 hours to 9am this morning. The highest falls were up through the mid-north around Clare where we had around 7 millimetres. Uh, also falls of, uh, around, uh, well, up to 5 millimetres through parts of the uh, Murraylands there as well and then a couple of millimetres across other parts of the agricultural area. Uh, and then since 9am we've just had another 3 millimetres tick over at Mount Lofty in Crafers and a few millim- couple of millimetres also at Mount Gambia. Uh, it was also a bit cold uh, this morning with uh, minimum temperatures down to about one degree at Nerupta, uh, Keith and Clare this morning. Uh, looking ahead for the remainder of the day, we have got a trough of a weak trough of low pressure that's moving up across the south. That's what's brought those showers to uh, Mount Gambia, across Kangaroo Island, and we'll start to see shower activity increase through other parts of the agricultural area through the afternoon and into the evening with the passage of that trough. So look, just a, another few millimetres possible today, maybe up to three or so across the agricultural area, more likely um, through the southeast districts. Uh, still remaining quite cool in that southerly airstream. Uh, mild through the north and southwest to southeasterly um, winds fresh about southern coasts at time in the wake of the trough. Uh, moving on to uh, tomorrow, we'll still have a few showers lingering, mainly about southeast facing coasts, uh, but we have got a new high pressure system moving into the bite which will help to stabilise the weather. That'll gradually move east over the next couple of days and we'll see temperatures uh, increase slightly as well. So for tomorrow, just the odd shower remaining about, uh, you know, southeast coast of the uh, Air Peninsula there, uh, perhaps streaming up um, through the Gulf, through York Peninsula in the back of the Mount Lofty Ranges and maybe Mount Gambier could get the odd shower as well. But perhaps only another um, millimetre or two at most tomorrow. Still cool in the south, grading to mild to warm in the north, south to southeasterly winds tending easterly, easterly through the northwest. Uh, then over the weekend, that high pressure system really clears off. Looks like it should be mostly dry for both Saturday and Sunday. Could be cold early though with um, some clearer skies on the way, so cold early with some possible um, frost patches inland on the Saturday. Uh, otherwise still still on the cool side, cool to mild through the south, warm um, in the north and west and light to moderate um, southeast to easterly winds fresh about the coast again through the afternoon and the evening. Uh, similar sort of conditions on the Sunday there. Um, cold again um, inland with early frost patches but otherwise uh, cool to mild in the south gradient to warm in the north uh, in, the, in the west. Uh, southeast to easterly winds again um, persisting fresh about uh, the coast through the afternoon. Uh, then on Monday there is a trough of low pressure through Queensland that will just sneak into the far northeast of our state on Monday. So we could see uh, a possible shower or thunderstorm in the far northeast of the state. Elsewhere it should remain uh, dry though uh, in cool to mild conditions through the south. It's starting to warm up a little, becoming warm to hot through the north and the west and southeast to northeasterly winds. So look, rainfall totals really just the next two days through the southern agricultural area uh, with showers easing back tomorrow. So perhaps another five millimetres in total at most for most places. Uh, another, 
Uh, and then maybe in the far northeast of the state uh, with thunderstorms could see falls of 2 to 10 millimetres on Monday with those thunderstorms. Um, otherwise, over the uh, outlook period, it looks like it's starting to warm up through Tuesday and Wednesday. The next system moving through on either the Wednesday or the Thursday, but warming up ahead of that um, before the next burst of showers comes through Selena. Thanks for that, Tina. Tina Donaldson there, who is our forecaster today at the Weather Bureau. So having a look at the forecast for the Western Inland District of New South Wales for tomorrow, the Upper Western and Lower Western District, both going for a partly cloudy day. For the Upper Western, looking at southerly winds, 15 to 20 k now becoming light before dawn and then becoming southerlies 20 to 30 k's now in the morning. Overnight temperatures between 6 and 9, daytime temps into the low to mid 20s. For the lower western district, light winds, they'll become southwesterlies 15 to 20 k's now early in the morning and then 10 southerly 20 to 30 k's now in the morning. Overnight temperatures falling between 5 and 9, daytime temperatures around 20 degrees. It's coming up to half past 12 here on the Country Hour. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Selena Green. Selena Green. Hi there. I'm here to keep you company until one o'clock today. Coming up. Australia, it's a land of floods and fires. Even as we speak, Victoria's copping both. At the moment, there's been some research into the effect of bushfires on farmers, but it seems that uh, there's been little around what kinds of mental distress that floods cause on those who make our food and fibre. Well, one South Australian researcher is looking to change that. You'll hear from her very shortly. And are you allergic to bees? It's a pretty common allergy. But imagine being allergic to bees and being a beekeeper for a living. Well, you'll meet a local beekeeper who's undergoing desensitisation to overcome his anaphylaxis. About 20 minutes after a sting, all of a sudden I got hot. So I thought, well, I'll head back to the car and woke up on the ground. I don't know how much longer later, tried to get to my feet, crashed back into the ground a second time, then crawled to the car and managed to call my wife. And when she got there, she realised I'd broke tibia, fibula, dislocated my ankle and permanently destroyed a couple of tendons. So it's a pretty severe allergy. How on earth is he overcoming it to keep working with bees? Well, you'll hear his chat coming up, so stick around for that. But first, Matt Coleman has headlines. Hi, Matt. Hello, Selena. In the news this afternoon, Safe Work SA is encouraging retail businesses to implement better safety and training procedures against violence, aggression and armed robberies. In a recent campaign focusing on the retail sector, Safe Work SA inspectors attended 89 workplaces across the state between June of 2022 and January 2023. 42% of the non-compliance notices issued centred around the lack of support and training provided to employees on safety against over assertive behaviours. The SA Labor Party is expected to announce who will replace the outgoing Upper House MP Irene Nevmatikos within a fortnight. Ms Nevmatikos resigned from Parliament earlier this month after being diagnosed with a new cancer. Attorney-General Kaya Ma says the party is in the process of finding her replacement. 
And a software issue has caused Adelaide bus passengers to be overcharged with the system failing to adjust to daylight savings time. Customers commuting via non-OPAN buses between 9 and 10am have been overcharged between 30 cents and $1.85. Trains, trams and OBANs were not affected. More news at one o'clock. Thanks, Matt. Matt Coleman there with your headlines. Well, a significant milestone in Australia's construction and timber industry has happened here in South Australia, in the state's southeast to be specific. Timberlink's next timber facility has pressed its very first CLT, that's cross-laminated timber, panel, after a multi-million dollar investment in its Tarpena radiator pine timber mill. It's a fully local product that its proponents say has the potential to revolutionise the way buildings are constructed here in Australia. David Oliver is the Chief of Marketing and Sales with Timberlink. Welcome to the Country Hour. Good afternoon. Thank you, Selena. Great to uh, talk to you today. So another milestone in this uh, development of this plant and this new technology for Australia, your first CLT beam is what rolled off the line. Yes, our first cross-laminated timber panel we produced uh, at our facility at Tarpena. Uh, We produced a panel that's uh, 16 metres long and three and a half metres wide, which is a significant uh, step in what's been a really big project for us. So you've commissioned this uh, this line within the mill now, so that means you've given it a test run, you've rolled off the product, it's all working as you'd, as you'd hoped after a very long process to get that machinery installed? <laughs> yes, look, it has. We developed this through COVID. We announced in 2020 that we're going to build this facility. It's Australia's first combined cross-laminated timber and glue-laminated timber plants uh, in Tarpena. It's in a 15,000 square metre facility. Commissioning has gone very well. We had planned to be ready to uh, launch and start selling uh, product in October. We uh, made our first blue laminated beam uh, about three weeks ago. That commissioning is going very well. We've got some final compliance testing and we'll be supplying at the, the back end of October as, as planned. Right, so both the GLT and the CLT, uh, they're ready to go. Just remind us again, they're slightly different products. Uh, they're large-scale products, and, and remind us what they're used for or can be used for. Certainly. Look, they're, they're used for construction of really two different types of buildings. So the glue-laminated timber is essentially beams that can be used in garage lentils or large stands within residential housing. And glue laminated timber essentially replaces steel. So if you think in a in a building that's made out of steel and concrete, the glue laminated timber replaces uh, beams and uh, for things like beams, roofs, columns, trusses. And we can make those 12 metres long and up to a metre deep. And the cross laminated timber is essentially used to replace concrete in walls, floors, roofs and stairs. Uh, and we can make panels 16 metres long three and a half metres wide and 400 mil thick. And when we make the stairs, we actually route with our CNC uh, router out of those uh, billets, uh, the actual stairs, the flights of stairs, which is a really, uh, really exciting way to, to build. How fulfilling was that moment to see that beam or that panel roll off uh, the line there after all of this work? It must have been a satisfying moment. Oh, look, it's, it was very satisfying and also really pleasing for, for the team but not only Timberlink, but to the region. Uh, as we've talked before, this takes timber into places in Australia where it's, it hasn't been before from the Green Triangle. Uh, we're going to be able to work with builders to, to produce houses up to 12 storeys high and all made out of timber. As we know, uh, the region's really reliant on the domestic residential building uh, cycle. This actually takes us out of that cycle and puts us into an environment where we can sell timber 
into the commercial market, into uh, large-scale hotels, apartments, office buildings, commercial and uh, government buildings. So very exciting for the region. Uh, it's a generational investment. Our, our team are really excited, and, and certainly the feedback we're getting from the community and, and our customers has been uh, very pleasing. And a fully South Australian product, because you're literally taking the timber from the, from the forest surrounding the area. They're going into the neighbouring mill to be processed. You've got then the, the new plant there as well, and then they roll out what the back of, of the truck to their destination. That's- that's exactly right. So we will we'll essentially uh, produce those uh, CLT panels. They're actually uh, with a router, routed to the required shape. So the doorways are cut out, the windows, penetration, plumbing and electrical. And they're all designed, so the entire building is designed in a computer model that then uh, outputs to a shop drawing in our facility and... We then deliver in uh, panel list order, and essentially it goes together like we go on site. I'm probably oversimplifying it, but uh, that's the process. So it's all pre-designed. We manufacture the components, and they're delivered to site uh, millimetre perfect. Now, full production, not far away. I understand you are accepting orders now for these products. Have you had a level of interest already? And if so, where from? Yes, we have. Um, we've had uh, lots of interest, actually, and we're in discussion with quite a lot of builders on various uh, projects uh, in New South Wales, Queensland, South Australia and Western Australia, uh, and certainly from a, a glue uh, laminated timber perspective, so the, the beams and columns, a lot of interest out of Victoria. Our existing customer base are very excited to see this new sovereign capability uh, on come online, so less reliance on, on imports. Uh, we've started receiving orders for those uh, beams, uh, which has been really, really pleasing, obviously, after all this uh, significant investment. Do you see any potential, David, for exports of this overseas? Is it really just a focus on the domestic market? That's, that's a great question. There's, there's not a lot of these plants uh, in our part of the world. Uh, so certainly there is opportunity for exports uh, into potentially places like Singapore, um, and over time we'll explore explore that. We want to get really good at uh, supplying builders here in Australia first, uh, but as we go through various economic cycles, uh, working to export high-value Australian-made timber products is certainly something that's very appealing. Yeah, for those people out there who are experiencing delays in building product in building uh, at the moment, would this be expected to have any impact on you know, availability of uh, of resources for building and maybe cutting back on some of those uh, those waiting times? So I guess it's two parts to that question. In terms of our facility, we've actually expanded our facility in in terms of our total timber production, so that we can meet the demand of our existing customers uh, and also uh, supply this plant. And we also have announced a $63 million expansion of our facility in Tasmania, which by 2028 will increase its production by 50%. Uh, so from a Timberlink perspective, into the future, we'll be producing more timber than we ever have before. But certainly in terms of CLT and GLT construction, uh, it's a lot faster than conventional building because you don't need to wait for the floor panels to cure with concrete. Uh, you actually can move on to the next level of the building and start the work of fitting out below. Certainly the feedback we're getting from builders that have built in this space is they find that as they build the building, each floor gets faster as the team get more and more experience in installing it. So there's some benefit in terms of time of build uh, once you're on site. David Oliver, thanks for joining us on The Country Hour today. 
Thanks, Melina. Always a pleasure. David Oliver is Chief and Mar- oh, chief of Marketing and Sales with Timberlink. It is 20 minutes to one. You are with Selena Green on the Country Hour today. Well, the Murray-Darling Basin Authority is in the Riverland at the moment, hearing from irrigators and other river stakeholders. It's for another listening tour across the catchment, which comes at a heated time as buybacks are discussed in the wake of a flood. Julie Kimberley asked MDBA Chief Executive Andrew McConville if the prospect of water buybacks loom large in their discussions with local water users. Yeah, look, it has. Um, the government has announced its its intent through uh, agreement it reached with, with South Australia, with uh, New South Wales and Queensland and the ACT to look at amending the Water Act um, to to support, if you like, you know, completion of the Basin Plan. And that brings a range of options to the table, including, uh, you know, water purchases. And, yeah, there are a range of views in the community as to you know, how water should be recovered. And I think it's great to hear that from, from different parts of the community and it gives us the opportunity to be able to provide that feedback, you know, directly to the government, um, and to also explore you know, you know, what are the suite of options available. Yes, water purchase is one, but there are a range of other options available to support the implementation of the Basin Plan. You just mentioned a range of views. Can you elaborate further on that? Well, I think you know, quite simply some people are, are supportive of, 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 of wish to see you know, water purchases being one of the options available to complete uh, the implementation of the Basin Plan. You know, other segments of the community saying, well, we want to see... Um, you know, efficiency measures or on-farm efficiencies. We want to see the completion of infrastructure projects as a way in which uh, we want the basin plan to be implemented. I, I think the key point here is that you know no one says that we don't need a basin plan. No one says that we shouldn't have a basin plan. But in water, it's a contested space, and so there's a range of views about how to complete that. Our focus as the MDBA is obviously to to work with the government, whatever its policy framework, to see the plan implemented to make sure that we can, you know ensure that everyone, uh, communities, the environment, uh, industry, are are able to um, use what is a very scarce resource. There is staunch opposition to buybacks here in SA. Is that being felt elsewhere? Yeah, there is concerns about water purchase buybacks, as you say, uh, up and down the basin, and it does vary by by community. There are communities that, that want to see that as an option because it supports uh, quicker implementation of the plan. Um, it's also, in, in some areas, uh, supported because you know, people want to change out of agriculture. Other parts of the basin, absolutely the opposite, uh, where, where communities are saying, no, we don't want to see water recovered in that way. It has an impact on how an irrigation trust might work. It has an impact on those that are left behind. Um, the government has made it very clear, should the bill get through the parliament, and I think it's important to remember it's still to be debated, but should the bill get through the parliament that there will be assistance available to communities where, where water purchases happen. Uh, but again, also stressing that it is one of a suite of options available. So um, I think the debate has got very centred on buybacks and water purchases. I think the point I'd like to make is the the bill as it's proposed and the changes that are proposed, it is one tool in a very large toolkit of, of, of opportunities to see that we can implement the Basin Plan in full. The long-range forecast shows we are looking at a pretty dry cycle ahead. How does the MDBA plan to tackle this? Well, look, I mean, it's really through the Basin Plan. I mean, the Basin Plan is, is the resource that we have to manage what is a very scarce resource, and it's about making sure that there is uh, you know, water available for the environment, water available for industry, for communities, and you know, that's our best tool. We look at other places in the world. They don't have plans. They have a lot of issues. So for us, it's really about 
continuing to work you know, with the community, with the industry, with the government to see that the basin plan can be implemented because that really is our best insurance against what is a drying future. There's Murray-Darling Basin Authority Chief Executive Andrew McConville there speaking with Julie Kimberley, 16 minutes to one. But let's stick by the river for now. You may have heard about studies looking into the mental health impacts of farmers who've experienced bushfires. What about floods? That's an area less understood and researched. The University of South Australia Associate Professor Kate Gunn, who also runs iFarmWell, is trying to change that by interviewing farmers who've been through floods. And she told Eliza Berlage why this research is so important. After various flooding events, we've actually been asked to come in and help farmers who've been affected by them. And we're always a little bit reluctant to do so unless there's good research that tells us what are going to be the helpful things um, that we should be doing, like how we should be intervening. And because that kind of ground research hadn't been done, the purpose of this work is to understand how floods do affect farmers' wellbeing and most importantly, what they're already doing to help themselves and how they would like to be supported. And the idea is that this information will enable us to design support strategies that build upon farmers' existing strengths and coping strategies. And, you know, we don't want to tell them how to suck eggs. We want to learn from what they already know and build upon that. And so was this something that you noticed there was was a gap in? Maybe was there more sort of mental health support around droughts or bushfires, for example? Yeah, that's right. There's quite a lot of research on farmers' mental health in drought and a little bit in bushfires, but very little um, on floods at all. Um, There's only two studies uh, that we could find that were relevant. Only one one of them um, had interviewed only, I think it was about six female flood-affected farmers in Victoria. And yeah, so we just thought we need to understand this problem within a little bit broader population than that, because we know from psychological research more generally that experiencing a flood can increase the risk of, you know, things like post-traumatic stress disorder and anxiety and depression. And sometimes it can lead to um, economic stress and domestic violence and substance use, you know, that's in the general population. And there's also research that shows that when your house or your business is affected, it puts you um, at greater risk of those things. So given that in the case of farmers, you know, farmers often live where they work, and for some of them, both their houses and their businesses were affected. We thought that this is really an important population to understand um, how we can better help. That seems uh, yeah, quite surprising that there's been so few studies on um, the effect of floods on, on farmer mental health compared to other things, considering you know, we are a country of droughts and flooding rains and you know, these things um, do cycle through and with climate change, there's a lot of discussion about the intensity and frequency of natural disasters becoming more frequent. Why do you think with floods it's not been explored enough? Yeah, that's a really good question. I'm not, I'm not too sure. But we've actually had various organisations coming to us saying, you know, what's the evidence? How can we best help this population? You know, we're actually working um, with Regional Development Australia, Murraylands and Riverland um, on this project because they want to know um, how best to intervene. And we're working with the National Centre for Farmer Health as well. Um, they're based in Victoria and they've been doing work with, with quite affected farmers already in that region. But yeah, uh, everyone's hungry for the information, but um, at this stage, it's just not out there. So we're really looking forward to having the opportunity to talk to farmers, get their first-hand experiences, what they've learnt from it, 
And most importantly, as I said, um, find out how they want to be helped because we know from all our previous work with farmers that, you know, they respond really well if we work with them to develop um, mental health and wellbeing initiatives that they feel are really relevant to them and their way of life. So we, we, we're keen to get out there and interview farmers. And so who, who's eligible to participate so anyone across Australia who's been affected by the 2022 or 2023 floods and who plays an active role um, in operation of a farming or a pastoral enterprise in Australia. So, you know, you could be a farmer, um, a part of a farming family, um, you could work on a farm, um, all of those people are eligible, just have to be over 18 years of age and affected um, by the floods quite recently because we're wanting to ideally look at how it's affecting people now and then um, go back and interview them in 12 months' time as well and see how um, those experiences and how their needs might have changed over time. And so their, their interviews, you know, how much time would be required of people? So we're guessing between 30 and 60 minutes and we can do the interviews over the phone or via Zoom depending on what suits people. It really depends on how long people have got to speak to us and how much they've got to say. We've done similar work with fire-affected farmers and we found that farmers actually really love the opportunity to share their experiences with us and found it quite a cathartic experience actually. So we'll listen for as long as they'll speak to us but if you've only got 30 minutes to spare that, that would be greatly appreciated as well. That's University of South Australia Associate Professor Kate Gunn and she was speaking with Eliza Berlage. If you are a farmer who wants to take part in the flood mental health research you can contact her at kate.gunn at unisa.edu.au. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Ever been stung by a bee? Pretty painful. Imagine if they were potentially deadly. Well, for some of you with a bee allergy, that is the reality. Imagine if you're a beekeeper. Well, Loxton beekeeper Ian Cass gets injected with bee venom and adrenaline every five weeks through a process called desensitisation so that he can continue his work and overcome his anaphylaxis. Well, he explained to Anita Ward why he switched in the first place from dryland farming to tending bees. About five years, I was a dryland farmer for a, a lot of years, including running a, a fairly large white suffix stud. But 10 years ago, I was involved in a rollover car accident, ended up with three crush fractured vertebrae, and that made farming impossible, operating heavy machinery impossible. Um, so I had to find a job, and a mate of mine said, Oh, are you interested in beekeeping? I said, oh, I don't know, I've never thought of it. But yeah, I'll come out and have a look. And had a, I went out and had a go with him and I enjoyed it. And so I slowly started to build up from there. And when did you become allergic to bees? About two years in. The first warning I got, about 20 minutes after a sting, I'd been working some bees on canola and all of a sudden I got hot. And I went, wow, I feel really, really hot. It was a warm day. So I thought, well, I'll head back to the car and then I can pull my bee suit off when I get in the car because the bees were, you know, more than a bit friendly at the time. Headed back for the car and I woke up on the ground, I don't know how much longer later, woke up on the ground going, what am I doing here? So I tried to get to my feet and crashed back into the ground a second time. Then crawled to the car and managed to call my wife. And when she got there, she realised I'd broke tibia, fibula, dislocated my ankle and permanently destroyed a couple of tendons. So, yeah, I made a real good mess of myself. And at the time, we didn't realise that was anaphylaxis. I put it down to heat stroke. First off, the doctors thought I'd had a heart attack, but they checked that and they said, no, no, there's no way you had a heart attack. 
So about three months later, I was still beekeeping and um, got another sting. And all of a sudden, I'm hot, I'm hot. And my wife helped me get my suit off. She's ex-Ambo, ex-nurse, so um, that's quite handy. Anyway, she said, I'll just sit on the chair. And I went, no, no, I'm getting on the floor. And she went, why? And I said, the room's spinning around and changing colours. This is very, very unpleasant. So she grabbed my wrist to do a radial pulse. No pulse. So then she grabbed, we've got a blood pressure machine, put that on me. It aired out four times before it got a readable blood pressure. was exceptionally low. And she said, you've got anaphylaxis. And I went, oh, no, I've been stung before. And she went, no, there's no doubt about it. Anyway, the ambulance got there by then, took me to hospital. They checked me out. They said, yep, definitely got anaphylaxis. And, um, yeah, I learned from there. Wow, that's incredible. And to, to sort of come out of nowhere as well, once you'd taken on this new career path, had, had you been allergic to anything in the past or had reactions like this before? No. No, I'd never had a reaction and I'd never had reaction to bee stings. I know at one stage I was down the southeast one day working some bees, and I leant forward with, I had a veiled suit instead of my, I use a round hood now, which keeps them away from my face a bit more, but I had the fencing type hood and reached forwards, and I got 12 stings right under my chin. Didn't bother me at all. I just flicked the stings out and kept going. Your immune system suddenly decides that it can beat bee venom, so it tries to actually knock the bee venom out, the problem is your immune system runs on adrenaline and so does your heart. So when you run out of adrenaline, it gets pretty serious for your heart. You Basically, it can stop beating and you can die. So yeah, you you learn very quickly <laughs> what this becomes. It becomes very scary. I then went, well, what am I going to do from here? Did a bit of research and found out that there's a desensitization program that can be done through the Royal Adelaide Hospital. Well, got on to a specialist. Because I was a beekeeper, they got me in quicker and I did the rapid bee desensitisation, which is, it's done in two days. And they get you in there, they put a cannula in so they can actually inject you with adrenaline very quickly. So if anything goes wrong, and then they start injecting you with very small doses of bee venom. And the first dose might be a hundredth of a sting. Then they'll come back to a fiftieth of a sting and then they'll come back to a quarter of a sting. And so they slowly build it up, retraining your body um, they did eight part stings in the first day, which added up to two stings all up. And then they did two the next day, which was two full stings. And after that, oh, they do it weekly, and then it goes out to monthly. I'm now five weeks apart. I get a an injection of bee venom. Never had a reaction since then until about three weeks ago. I got stung by a European wasp. It basically came in full pelt. I'd just taken my bee suit off. And it whacked me fair under the eye. I called my wife and said, this this had happened and I was heading for home. I got back as far as the Berry Bridge and um, we were talking on the phone and she said, are you all right? I said, no, I'm pulling up. And said to my wife, yeah, you better get here. So she was on her way. She called the ambulance. I always have EpiPens with me, but didn't use it. In the end, it actually settled. So they took me to Berry Hospital and um, after a couple of hours, discharged me and it all calmed down. So it didn't turn into a full-on one, but still scared me. So you, you've been going, undergoing this, this desensitisation treatment, what is it, would it be a couple of years now? Yeah, it's, well it's nearly three years I think yeah. since I started it, but it works for bee venom. But not but for of the course, wasp. I didn't have one for European wasps, so therefore I didn't realise I was anaphylactic to them as well. Playing with bees all the time, I've got very good suits, very careful, but you still get the odd sting. I mean, it doesn't bother me. I just usually flick the sting out and keep going and it doesn't actually bother me at all. But this European wasp 
put me on the ground pretty quick. <laughs> so does that um, mean you, you're going to, you know, look at possibly some desensitisation to the wasp stings as well, or is it something that you feel you're going to live I with? Would just, I think I'll just live with that one because, I mean, bees are what I'm working, so if I don't do that one, I can't work my bees. So I'll keep going with that. The other one, I'll just try and be as careful as I can. Yeah, and have your EpiPen and everything ready to go. It sounds like you, with you really know how to manage yourself, Ian, when, when those symptoms do come on. For, for people who haven't heard of the desensitisation process before, what does it feel like, you know, when you get the bee venom injected into you? Oh, it doesn't bother me at all. It's just the same as a bee sting, and they don't bother me much. I, I take an antihistamine, so I actually take them before I do that. Um, if I'm working the bees, I'll usually take one as well to, before I work them. So that if you do get a sting, it actually doesn't have any, you don't get any swelling or whatever. I find they don't really hurt. Barely, I barely feel it when they do it. Probably the one warning I'd give people, if, you're, if you are stung by a bee, do not hang around and do not stay in the same clothes. Because if you get stung by a bee, they release a pheromone. And they mark that area. And they mark you to be cop the next dose. So if, the, if you stay there... If there's any other bees around, you're going to cop another one very quickly. So you get away from the area and wash the area, wash your clothes. And seek some help. That is Loxton beekeeper Ian Cass there speaking with Anita Ward. Fascinating story. If you want to read more about it, um, about Ian's therapy that he's gone through and uh, also we'll read about uh, this whole process of desensitising yourself, uh, there's a great story online right now. You can also read uh, what allergist Professor Peter Smith has to say about uh, some of this work. So hop on the website abc.net.au forward slash news. Uh, the news right now is that it's two minutes to the news and Jason Chong will be on your radio this afternoon. Hi, Jason. Hello. How are you today? Very good. What have you got coming up for us? Well, today uh, the new $1 coin was released. This is the one with King Charles's head on mm. it. It's very interesting. I, I, I want to find out more about what goes into releasing a new coin like that. Is there Does, does the king have to actually put his stamp on it and, and okay the portrait. Well, surely so, he gets to say whether he likes it or not because it's yeah. going to be out there a lot. <laughs> yeah, or do they give him like four and then he gets to veto two or something. <laughs> uh, so we're going to figure out that. Also, the Red Cross, they're looking for a whole bunch of plasma donors this month. It's like one and a half thousand people a day is what they're after. That's their target. So we'll have a chat to them about uh, if you're eligible and if you can go in and, and give blood or plasma. Um, and it's also the Producers Challenge Day. So this is the day where if you want to misuse the power of the ABC, <laughs> you're more than welcome. You can just tell us any burning question that you've got in your head uh, and it's someone else's problem to find the answer. <laughs> If only you had one of those every day for every problem that you didn't want to have to sort out yourself. I wish. Have a great show, Jason. Thank you. Jason Chong there. He'll be on your radio this afternoon, so stick around for that. Thanks so much for your company today. I've been Selena Green, and I'll be back on your radio tomorrow for more of The Country Hour. It's just coming up to news time. It's almost one o'clock. your ears. Download the ABC Listen app and find all our audio in one handy place. Tap on the ABC radio icon and go to our station page.
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.